Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Richard Hanania. Richard Hanania is a writer, researcher and president of the Centre for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology and a research fellow at Defence Priorities. Now time for comments. Here are some comments on the Thomas Frank episode. Michaela Horwood, very interesting man. I learned new and profound things. History is the best. Zoe Karat Zafaris, excellent interview and topic, one of the best. There you go. That's just some people who enjoyed the Thomas Frank episode. Yeah, yeah. it's very informative. It's very podcasty. So, is this your last podcast? Well, we have to do um, someone else who I've written over there. <laughs> someone else who've written over there. Oh, Paul Kingsnorth. So I might be on it or I might not. It depends on depends your on schedule. Depends on when it gets done. Depends when you want so to So this do could it. be goodbye, this Jen. Jenny May goodbye. Finn is leaving to start a new job. Your leaving do was... Last night. How was it? Strange. Why? This is strange. Strange to leave a then job. Then Gareth stood up and nearly cried. Mm. Then he nearly made Annabelle cry. People nearly cry. Yeah. People How cry. did you find it? I was really tired, yeah, Jen. Yeah, you looked tired. I really was tired from the work. You know, like, I'm happy you're doing what you want to do. Hey, listen, if you've not got tickets to see me on tour, go to russellbrand.com, sign up to my mailing list, and I'll give you a code to get a 50% discount for gigs at Bristol and Blackpool, as well as loads of other information. So sign up to my mailing list right now. Keep watching my YouTube channel regularly because it's always fantastic. But now it's time to speak to Richard Hanania. He's, he's a brilliant educator, great communicator. He's done incredible research around the war and gives you a not around war, around, around the military-industrial complex and military action and American foreign, foreign policy more broadly. If you have a little listen to him, I think you're going to understand with a, a new depth and a broader perspective many current military actions around the world. Let's have a listen. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Richard, thank you for joining us on Under the Skin. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Russell. Have you been busy since we tumbled into this geopolitical crisis? Uh, yeah, I've been pretty busy. I mean, a lot of people want to talk about uh, foreign affairs. I mean, the, usually a lot of my work, I'm uh, doing more long-term research projects. So it's something like how things have changed, you know, over the years or over the decades or trying to say something big about geopolitics or American politics or something. Uh, with this, you know, I've been keeping up daily with the news because it is, you know, a historically important event. So on top of my other work, I've been doing that too. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on in the world. If one of your priorities is to observe geopolitical trends, my understanding of your work is that your areas of expertise include nuclear policy, American grand strategy, political psychology, the politics of the Middle East and international law. Are there, are there any um, obvious glaring troubling trends that you've witnessed and are there are there things that have seen of, of uh, a, a perennial sort of things that have happened since, you know, like that uh, maybe uh, at the inception of the concept of manifest destiny have always been a pre present, for example, in American foreign policy? And 
how, what, how do you see these things play out over time? And remember that we're talking to an audience that's got me in it. So you have to keep things quite simple. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's, you know, sort of continuity, but there's, you know, there's been a lot of surprise in the last month. So, um, you know, my, my view of American foreign policy, I wrote a book on the subject uh, called um, uh Public choice theory, the illusion of grand strategy, basically argued that American foreign policy didn't have doesn't have much rationality to it. I mean, we call grand strategy, or we call you know, do uh, we bring out we make up these doctrines and these ideas uh, to describe a series of actions that are taken for politics or for self interested reasons or for other things. Um, and so, you know, I think that view has been uh, pretty well, um, uh, you know, pretty well uh, justified by recent events. I think that in the run up to the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine, um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there, there was basically an idea that Russia was upset about something. The U.S. was saying that it was probably going to invade. And we did very, very little to actually address the underlying cause of the um, of the issues involved and unfortunately the war started I mean and now we're not you know the the reaction has been sort of stronger than I that I thought it would be but at the same time it hasn't been I think directed or directed or focused on coming to a reasonable conclusion uh, before you know too many lives are lost we're gonna get to a conclusion to this thing eventually uh, but there is you know there's a risk of uh, you know there's a risk of a greater war a nuclear war uh, the, you know this is the nightmare scenario. And even if we don't get to that, we're getting just a sort of a prolonged conflict where we might have, you know, that might be unavoidable. I mean, his, his, history is sometimes tragic, um, but I think there could be more that America and the West could be doing to try to have a better outcome. It doesn't seem like we are. Whose interests, uh, forgive me for asking such a kind of blunt question, whose interests do you think are ultimately served by American foreign policy? How do you, what do you think? dictates these outcomes oh there's oh there's no i mean there's no, no, no shame in asking that question because it's it's a great question it's uh you know that's that's i think what you have to ask so the uh you know american foreign policy a lot of if you look at um you know a lot of the there's groups that disproportionately benefit from a more militarist foreign policy. Uh, so there's large corporations like uh, Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, that depend either exclusively on government contracts or almost exclusively. Um, and they are involved in the political process. They donate to politicians, they donate to uh, think tanks, they employ uh, former generals as consultants uh, and things like this. So there's the, um, you know, there's the defense industry, the military industrial complex. It's almost cliche, but it's cliche because it's, it's it's true. I mean, if you're an observer of American politics, it has a huge role to play. I think a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of the ideas behind American foreign policy. You know, it's not like the uh, military industrial complex comes along and says, you know, give us all your money because, you know, we like money and we want to be rich. Uh, there's usually support for certain ideas. Um, and, you know, that's what happens. The, the bureaucracies themselves become advantaged by certain policy. Um, NATO is itself sort of a lobbying arm. If you look at um, the uh, top general of NATO, he's always sort of more hawkish than where the American administration is. Um, and so they have a mission that they believe in and that and that benefits us. You know, it's probably uh, genuine what they believe in, but you know, this is a, this is another influence on our politics. So yes, generals, it's weapons manufacturers, there's influence of foreign governments. Uh, these concentrated interests have an outsized role to play in American uh, foreign policy. Is there evidence, like, I was surprised to learn just then that Lockheed, Martin and Raytheon, these big military industrial complex institutions exist almost entirely or entirely from uh, based on government spending. Can you 
see examples of where they're lobbying money might influence outcomes can you see how i recently learned obviously stuff that you've probably known since you were a nine-year-old boy but things like like politico is funded by weapons manufacturing money and stuff like can you sort of for our audience sort of just explain well look what it is is Raytheon and Lockheed Martin spend this much money on lobbying then these congress people own shares in those companies then these newspapers report on the war in this way then these pundits go on CNN that have ties to the military like so that we can sort of see how that influence plays out yeah you can actually often you know do it just exactly like you say every uh every step in, in the uh, process so the lockheed martin one is actually good that one is actually um, interesting because uh, politico has this national security newsletter where they summarize the news and certain perspectives on what's going on in the world and at the top it says um you know uh supported by lockheed martin it, that's actually you know better than most things because usually they don't have that disclaimer so you sort of you sort of you know at least there's openness in that uh the lockheed is actually a very interesting case there's a book called profits of war uh, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. It's a you know, double entendre. Um, and basically talks about Lockheed Martin's influence. So a lot of people have heard of a Project for a New American Century. Um, it was a neoconservative think tank. A lot of the people in the 1990s um, who went to serve in the uh, Bush administration who were behind the Iraq war, who wanted to overthrow Iraq uh, long before 9-11. Um, it was actually started by an executive at Lockheed Martin. I don't know if this cost actually a lot of money. If you, know, if you looked at how much money they put into Project for a New American Century, it might not have been that much, but basically their executive um, was behind this sort of neoconservative ideological movement. People, they come and they look at the ideology. They say, oh, look at these neoconservatives. They have crazy ideas and they certainly do. Um, and not many people know the story of how they came to power and who was supporting them. Um, the same uh, the same, lo- the same executive was actually involved in uh, uh, programs to try to expand NATO in the 1990s. You know, when we did that, when people weren't really uh, paying attention, um, there's a great, there was a great Bo- uh, Boston Globe X expose five or six years ago um, about uh, American generals. And they basically did a database of how many go work for contractors after their, uh, you know, after their retirement. It's almost all, it's pretty much all of them now, the three and the four star generals. Um, and, you know, it's not like, you know, that's not like the, uh, it's not like these companies are paying them while they're, you know, while they're serving, but you could see how this can be corruption, right? You, you, you're basically auditioning for a much more lucrative job after your government service. And that's getting, that's going to sort of incentivize you to uh, prefer certain policies uh, and not others. So it's very clear. I mean, just basically anyone you remember from the Bush administration or the uh, or the Obama administration, not not as much in the Obama administration, definitely the Bush administration to less extent the Trump administration. Just look up what they're doing now, and you'll often find that they're you know they're on the board of Boeing or they're working for Lockheed or, or something like that or Zoom actually. Uh, HR McMaster's on Zoom, so this is uh, it's not even like directly related, but there's you know there's a payoff at the end of the you know sort of these people end of these people's careers and. It's not very subtle and it's not very hidden. It doesn't take, you know, super research skills to find any of this out. It's sort of out in the open and we just sort of accepted in foreign policy where we probably would be asking more questions in other areas. If you had a more holistic perspective on reality rather than one that was so entrenchantly temporal, you would look at a member of the government while they are in administration and just say, wow, I'm just listening to a future employee of Raytheon or Lockheed Martin. And even while chronologically that may yet not have occurred, it will occur because we can see that it always occurs and that these policies coalesce and align. So 
in a sense, there's sort of no such thing as government. The structures are so interwoven that the government and the government's actions so um, commensurate with the required outcomes of these private corporate institutions that their very existence is more a simulacrum rather than a real bureaucratic entity responding to the democratic will of the population that it was elected to serve. Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't always like this. I mean, maybe people think this in certain uh, um, in certain respect, this might be unavoidable. But you know, you read history and you read about you know Harry Truman and how he lived after um, after he left the presidency. You know, he 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 didn't didn't live very well. I mean, Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, going back further, wrote his memoirs in order to make money. I mean, he was he was, had been president. Now, you know, the president goes. There was this event with the George W. Bush. He's speaking at some like self help conference. They pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, uh, for a speech. So there did used to be sort of not even laws, just norms. You know, you're a president, you don't go hawk toothpaste or you don't go speak at some uh, self-help gurus conference after, uh, you know, after you're retired. Um, you're right. We, we we just don't, you know, we've just become accept, acceptant of it. Um, they're, you know, even not even, you don't even have to look sort of t- temporally what's going on when they're in their government. They, you know, I, there was uh, like Nikki Haley, for example, they, when they talked about her in the media, she was on the border of Boeing and they wouldn't even say she was on the board of Boeing, they would say former UN ambassador, and they would talk about her past job. You know, suddenly the the something that was happening at a different time was relevant, and her current job on the board of Boeing, which I think she eventually left for some reason, but she was there at the time and getting quoted in the media. Uh, so yeah, there's been, um, you know, there, there, there's just a lot, just a complete lack of questioning on on the board. I mean, on, maybe on a lot of things, but the foreign policy stuff in particular, there's no like, there's almost like no left and right, you know, when often when there's like one side does something, the other side has a reaction. In the United States, at least, it's, you know, sort of a completely united establishment that at least us to not question things and ultimately to some bad policy outcomes. Yeah, that's mental, Richard, the idea that she would say, yeah, I'm mostly defined by my work as a UN ambassador. What about your current position as Boeing? Don't really think about that much. I'm also, I'm mostly, think of me as a UN ambassador that's currently, you don't need to know exactly what I do for a living. Mind your own business. Are you a conspiracy theorist? But what's interesting is, our, uh, you know, I have a YouTube channel and we do a lot of news analysis. And really, we talk a lot, Richard, about the way that the, for example, the war in Ukraine is reported on, the way that the media presents information, the way that even within the minuscule overteen mouse window of debate between sort of an institution like Fox News and MSNBC or CNN, there are still sort of hawkish elements employed by, you know, uh, that have been paid or have ties to the kind of institutions or weapons industry affiliations that you are describing. And essentially a reality becomes molded that only allows certain outcomes, regardless of what's happening within the shallow veneer of apparent democratic process. And then when you talk about that, instead of embracing debate and conversation, and I'm speaking personally now, you're condemned and like for being like a conspiracy theorist or a whack job or whatever. Um, with your own career as a writer and, uh, I don't know, commentator on these issues, what kind of resistance do you have? And, and, I, and, and, I, and I suppose perhaps are you able to better deal with that resistance given that what you undertake is, seems to me at least to be a better academically underwritten 
than what what I'm able to achieve. Yeah, I don't know if that I don't know if that helps or or not. I mean, you know, so I I have a lot of you know I've written I sort of like touching third rail. So besides foreign policy, the other thing I've written a lot about is sort of wokeness in American culture wars. And people think, oh, wokeness, you know, you 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 step in something, people are going to come after you, and that's true to a certain extent. Some people will hate you, some people will will yell at you or whatever. Um, and my foreign policy stuff, I you know, was probably it didn't get that much um, that much pushback before. For the war in Ukraine, but you know when the war started, um, it, it was like a you know it was like a, a switch going off. I mean, people really just you know were just enraged. You know, just simple stuff. If I you ask it, you know, it's not like you're defending Russia or you're defending Putin or defending the invasion. Just a question, you know, that does sending weapons to Ukraine help? I mean, did NATO uh, expansion have something to do with um, uh, the you know the war and those tensions between the U.S. and Russia and between Russia and Ukraine? Stuff that like you should just ask as like a think thinking human human being um, to want to know sort of the intentions and, and the, the behavior and the perspective of the other side, right, of, of, the, of the Russian perspective. This is just something that, you know, we, we, you know, historically, we could, we could even do this. We could talk about the Treaty of Versailles and, you know, how that led to, how that led to Hitler. And, you know, people are, can even do this in a historical context. In the moment, it's almost impossible. And, you know, you could look back, I mean, I'm old enough and you're old enough to remember the run-up to the uh, Iraq War. And sort of in retrospect, everyone looks back and says, oh, those people were crazy. You know, they went, they took French fries in the U.S. Congress and they renamed it Freedom Fries. You know, weren't those people insane? And everyone can look back at the last generation's Freedom Fries and think people were crazy. I mean, the test is what happens in the, in the moment the next time something like this happens. And unfortunately, um, it doesn't look like we've learned all that much. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's so ugly too. I mean, it's ugly in the same way. You know, they used to say, oh, you don't like the Iraq war. You must defend Saddam. You must not care about, you know, the victims of his regime. Um, it's 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 the exact same thing. Oh, you know, you 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 um you don't like NATO expansion. Putin also doesn't like NATO expansion. Oh, you're a, you know you're a Russian. Uh, you know you're you're uh, you're parroting Russian propaganda. You know any this could work for any war in history. Anybody who's anti-war, you could say you're just you know parroting propaganda of the uh, of whoever the enemy happens to be. Uh, so you know I appreciate what you do, Russell. You know I appreciate the. I was just telling. Uh, I was just tweeted out that basically uh, the people who are telling the truth in this moment right now are the ones who are doing it out of conviction because trust me there's no financial incentive or political incentive right now we're just in a we're just in an eye of like a, you know we're just we're just in the midst of a mass hysteria and you know thank god there are a few people who who are willing to think in moments like this i wonder thank you for saying that's kind of you i wonder um this is why, and I know that you're, you know, I sense obviously, and I know your work that what you deal in are the sort of movements of capital, the policies of nation, the history of conflict. Sometimes, though, I try to regard these matters, Richard, from a spiritual and occasionally emotional perspective because. It, more than rationalism, I contest, these perspectives can lead you to a place where you are willing to overlook the cudgels of simplification that abound and say, hold on a minute, there's no actual thing called Russia, Ukraine, America, UK. These are conceptual entities. They are temporal in and of themselves, the establishment of a state, while beneficial, potentially, it seems now is primarily a means of empowering elites within that state. And I recognise the rise of nationalism is a 
understandable response to the encroachment of globalism, which I oppose. I believe in local collectivized power, true democracy, true republicanism, where ordinary people are able to run their communities, their lives, solve their disputes through conversation. And whatever opposing force it is, in spite of the livery of their discourse, if they are like, you know, we're all about treating people cool, you know, on the social justice spectrum, which obviously, by the way, I'm totally down with, or if they're very much about traditionalism versus progressivism, which uh, again, there are aspects of that, which I think are most beautiful. What interests me most is the ability of um, me as an individual, you as an individual, we as communities, and you know, and if we want to corral ourselves together in larger populations for some mutually beneficial reason, and then call it a country and give it a flag, then that's all cool as well. But when these things are clearly being used to sort of short circuit reason to close down conversation as you just said oh you must be an ally a conspirator like that's the kind of crazy stuff like in one of our videos recently Richard I was saying like we ain't come any distance from when in this country during the second world war we like, were beating up Italian ice cream salesmen or in your country when Japanese people were getting in, put in internment camps or as you say even more recently the freedom fries and we look at the frivolity and stupidity of that jingoism but then when it's actually happening no how dare you, you know, how people must recognise that censorship and the closing down of debate, particularly if you disagree with people, is wrong. Yeah, Russell, I mean, I think I think you're too humble about your sort of intellectual abilities. I mean, that is a that is an excellent point, and that is you know that that's I think absolutely right. The uh, the idea that you know you're, you're right that these of course that you know nations don't exist as sort of objective you know phenomena like like gravity or something like that. You know, we have a idea of America. Um, you know, there's an idea, there's an idea of Russia, and the you know nationalism it, it's a double edged sword because it can inspire uh, selflessness. It can inspire people. People to do good things for their fellow man for, for, uh, for their country. Um, at, at the same time, there's sort of something very unnatural about it because it's it's an imagined community. You're not going to know, you know, every American, right? And, it, you know, the mistake comes, especially in moments like this, I think we see its, its weaknesses, right? And so nationalism, I mean, has to answer for, you know, the uh, First World War, Second World War, you know, 400, 500 years ago before, uh, before modern nationalism. Uh, war was seen as something as sort of, you know, kings did and the couple of guys they paid and the people that they, you know, they wanted to loot. It wasn't seen as, okay, I'm a German speaker. I'm always with, you know, other German speakers. And when they fight Russian speakers, it's total war against, you know, against everyone who happens to be Russian or French or, or whatever. And I think yeah, at this point, you know, we, we can see it just the silly stuff, you know, Russian, you know, composers, Russian, you know, astronauts, you know, getting canceled, uh, you know, tennis players, um, you know, and there's less, there's, it just doesn't, um, it's not conducive to, you know, to people understanding common humanity. So I'll see people and they'll say stuff like, oh, the Russian people support, you know, the war in Ukraine. It's not just Putin. They themselves often have to suffer. And it's like, do you really think you're different than them? Do you really think if Americans were not subject to the same history and the same propaganda that they wouldn't be supporting the conflict, you know, whatever war that uh, that the people around them supported? Of course, of course they would be. And so, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, these people, need these masses need to suffer. It's really an ugly thing and it's just it's just not doesn't it's not conducive to sort of seeing things from other people's perspective un, you know understanding others ultimately solving differences and solving problems uh so you're absolutely right on that i mean this is i think a pathology um of, of nationalism which in some cases can be good but in cases like this uh you know we, we definitely see its flaws
Given that you know that and I know that, we have to assume that they know that and therefore that their intentions are somehow uh, served through the creation of this uh, uh, fatic space where language is being simultaneously weaponized and nullified. I heard the phrase today, Richard, uh, that Biden would be sending lethal aid to Ukraine. And I sort of like felt that kind of Orwellian chill, uh, such a sort of a dreadful mangling of language. I feel sometimes that there is, I don't imagine that there is a sort of a deep plan. I, I, I just can't conceive of it in, in a sense it doesn't matter. But it feels that what's happening is an aperture is being opened between experienced reality of the individual and this kind of um, pageant of reality that we're invited to occupy in our daily life, this sort of uh, ersatz serenade to a set of moral codes that have barely any application in the real world. What does it matter if you change, you know, if you prepare to post some picture or flag or something compared to the reality of your life and your social intercourse on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, I love that you mentioned the flag thing, because it's like, you know, what does it do? I mean, like, you know, if you're, you know, I, I like to think carefully about, you know, I, I obviously have sympathy with the, what people of Ukraine are going through, what the Russian soldiers are going through, what everyone who's affected by the war is going through, you know, putting a Ukrainian flag on your bio, you know, I think you have to look at it from the perspective, does it help you or does it hinder your ability uh, to sort of think about this in a reasonable way and think about what is the best way to help people and ultimately, you know, end the war, you know, have peace and all that. Yeah, it, it's really just a sort of a um, unbearable, um, you know, signal of just shutting down thought. I, I really, you know, it seems like, oh, what's the big deal? It's a flag. I, I think it, it, you know, it does represent something. Um, whether there's, a, you know, whether there's a plan, I, you know, uh, maybe you've uh, heard about the great evolutionary uh, theorist, uh, Robert Trivers, uh, who basically his argument was that uh, human beings, the reason we have big brains um, is that we're, we're social animals. And so we've got to deceive, we got to deceive others. We've got to work with others. We've got to manage relationships. You know, this is sort of some of the most complicated things that humans uh, do. And often we want to deceive other people, um, but we become good at deception, at, at detecting deception too. So you lie to me or I lie to you, we evolve something in sort of an arms race. So how do you get around that? Well, what you do is you start to be able, the first person you deceive is yourself. So if I'm lying to you, but the first person I lie to is myself and I convince myself, then I get past your uh, detection mechanism for seeing that I'm lying. Um, so when people sometimes say, you know, is it like a plan or is it, um, you know, or is it, you know, less intentional than that? And do people really believe it? It's actually both. It's like it's people have interests and then it's human nature to convince yourself that the interests are consistent with some kind of, you know, ideology that benefits everyone else. And those two things really can, uh, can't be disconnected. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I think that that is, I think that's how you understand these things. I think you understand these people have interests and they have ideology. And sometimes the ideology will lead them to go even beyond what their interest is. I mean, that's what it means to convince yourself to really believe something, right? It's not going to all, it's not like you could turn it off the moment that um, the ideology becomes self-destructive and that's, and that's the dangerous thing. And that's how you can get to places where you do things that are in nobody's interest at all. 
That's fascinating. I suppose the territory that at least I'm mentally entering now, Richard, is an ontological space where I have to think about my self-deception, even in quite fundamental terms of believing myself to be me, the the object that is Russell with Russell's preferences and Russell's history and Russell's projections and Russell's modes of behaviour and predictability. Again, this is why I seek recourse in the spiritual domain this time in particular the ability for meditative practice to introduce aspects of your own consciousness still held within the domain of what you would loosely call self but somewhat abstracted from the matrix of core beliefs and preferences that on a bad day I'm simply unable to see beyond I become a patriot of my own beliefs of like well Russell does this Russell doesn't like that if Russell's caught up in traffic Russell has to respond if Russell sees someone attractive Russell does this Russell doesn't eat that when essentially really you know this uh, <laughs> of a congregation of uh, of, uh, vapours and molecules that has become through whatever means, and I bet you're a bloody atheist, but from my perspective has become become sentient through some glorious and unknowable process, has to be sort of interfaced with in order that we can construct a kind of new epistemology around, mm, what do I want to say? Around what we are trying to achieve. Because if you want to undo the kind of narratives that you and I are discussing, I feel like that, you know, you've got to mine some pretty deep seams, you know, before people are going to be... It's difficult to rationally convince people of the nuances and complexity of, well, as you've already cited, NATO expansionism, the complexity of the various groups within Ukraine, the economic interests uh, around resources and minerals, the ongoing biases around reporting. You know, like I feel like well, unless you start actually changing individuals in a pretty fundamental way, and that, that's why I wonder if nihilism, like a kind of atheistic, nihilistic, materialistic, empty, hollow, valueless, principleless culture is promoted, because then it's very difficult for people to say, this is who we are, this is what we believe in, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, because there is no we, and there are no values anymore. There's just a sort of a entropic soup of valueless sort of oh, I don't know jism sorry for that word it's uh, English colloquialism <laughs> <laughs> I think what yeah I think what you're saying is that when, when you have this atheist materialism and it's okay to like you can go there and you can stress people you know be rational look at your cognitive biases you know here's a paper that shows you know some theorists show, showed this or that um, you could do that all day and it doesn't seem to really grab people and it doesn't seem to really change and you know people can even ask why not just go along with my evolutionary nature and, and enjoy myself and go along with the crowd I mean there's really it's hard to have an answer to that um, you know these things it's I, I think you're right you've looked at you know historic you know, whether people like, you know, particular religions or not, they've often been uh, a source of resistance to power. Um, you know, governments and, for example, dictatorships in the Middle East, they would have, you know, these Islamists, they would be the only people brave enough and crazy enough to challenge the central government, whether we like their program or not. That's just, you know, that's just the case. Same things with uh, uh, the state and Christianity throughout history. So any kind of spirituality is, to a large extent, threatening to the government.
different because it can be co-opted to a certain extent, but it often has a mind of its own. Um, and it has its own values. Um, and, you know, these things sort of emerge organically. I mean, they're, you know, they're often in very cases, thousands of years old, they've withstood the test of time. Um, it's hard to, you know, sort of plan that or build that from scratch. Like if you're not a Christian or you're not a Muslim or you're not Jewish or something, it's hard to say, you know, let's, you know, let's sort of go out and preach this new, um, uh, you know, this new sort of religion or this new spiritual take. I, you know, I'm, I'm for people trying things and going out and doing things. And, you know, sometimes, you know, this is why I'm, you know, this is the case for, uh, you know, small libertarianism or, or localism. It's like, you know, society can try a whole lot of things. We're not smart enough to plan ahead of time what it's going to look like. Um, but, you know, we can learn from other people's experiences and we can, you know, go decide which direction we want to go into. Um, so, yeah, I think there's definitely uh, something there. It's just very, very hard to sort of, uh, it was sort of, uh, you know, sort of decide, you know, do this sort of from the top down. It's got to be more organic, more localized process. Yeah, you can't sort of pretend it has to be authentic. You can't pretend to have a mystical experience. It's uh, You can't pretend that you believe in oneness. There has to be some kind of personal, non-performative experienced reality. And I can see why those kind of ideologies, even though any established religion that you could name, I'm sure I would be able to think of bad things about it as well as good things. But what they do do is mobilize the human spirit potentially to point towards meaning and purpose and something bigger than your individual life that I think ultimately as a cultural force could be kind of empowering even though it's pretty clear there have been negative outcomes as well as too many for us to, to list but the, the, um, but what I feel like is within it is the ability for people to sort of organize around a principle that is valuable which is what you're invited to do really with nationalism and a belief in state or secularism anyway there's this thing the state we, we all serve it you know what are we saying when we're saying you know that Tchaikovsky has some sort of tangential connection to Putin's expansionism in Ukraine, like that there is some essence evidently to Russia. We've accepted that. Otherwise, why ban Tchaikovsky? So, um, yeah, I, OK. So given that this is something that you understand um, beyond the contemporary issues, but you have a historic understanding of, can you talk to me uh, about some examples you have of how, you know, you've flagged the Treaty of Versailles and how that led to the conditions that exacerbated and expedited the Second World War. You mentioned some of the jingoism around Iraq. Can you think of some uh, examples that our audience might enjoy around militarism and uh, the sort of and how it is economically undergirded in, in ways that um, you know stuff that would be interested in Richard as if we were doing a podcast or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, you know, the, the sort of the idea of nationalism as a um, as a sort of force for talking about, you know, and sort of understanding something as a foreign country as national essence. I think that, you know, people familiar with American foreign policy, it would be hard to come up with an example of, um, you know, an example of that not happening when we talk about, you know, foreign countries. I mean, we basically demonize a foreign country. We don't take their, you know, there, there was a couple of years ago, you know, Trump uh, met with Kim Jong-un and it was just like, you know, they, like they were, people were shocked. They said a, uh, a president has never met with the leader of North Korea. Like, and it's like, you know, they've given him legitimacy. It's like, well, what does it matter? It's like, we've, we have this problem with this country uh, that goes back 70 years or so. And, you know, we can 
can never sit down and talk to them in that 70 years. And we think that that's working, that that's a, you know, that, that, that's a great thing, that we're losing something by going and talking to them. Uh, so, you know, we see this, we see this basically everywhere right now. The U.S. is sanctioning uh, the Taliban because the U.S. is upset that it lost in Afghanistan. Um, and there's not like, you know, it's not like we're, you know, working that hard. You know, we talked about the people of Afghanistan and how they're suffering, and that's why we needed to keep fighting there. You know, now there's a massive humanitarian tragedy directly related to American outcomes. And we, we just don't care because it doesn't engage the national spirit. It's just, you know, anything the national spirit is towards and sort of anti-humanitarianism, let the country you know, go to hell because that's what they deserve for because the, they rejected, you know, all the blessings that America brought them. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's more hard to actually find examples of where uh, this is not the case that it actually is. And um, yeah, it's, um, you know, I'm trying, you know, the, the, this is the, this is sort of the, this is the idea why we don't have, um, you know, we don't have a grand strategy. There's human emotion, there's self-interest and like, you know, think carefully and, you know, try to make the world a better place. There's just not a lot of space for that. That's the thing of, you know, podcasts and conversations and articles. It, it doesn't often translate into the real world. Do you know what I feel like when you talk about that? It's like there's a, it's a specter. There's nothing actually there. When you say like you know the American project or American grand strategy, when it comes, when you actually analyze it, you have to ask, well, well, what are these values and principles? We all know the kind of things we're meant to recite, like for my nation or for yours. Like, oh, it's about freedom and liberty and democracy and the right to be who you want to be. But then, like when you start road testing those ideas. You know, like, well, what's, you know, what were we doing in Iraq or what are we doing in certain aspects of our domestic policy and areas of inequality and uh, rampant, rampant corporatism underwritten by sort of the revolving door between Wall Street, big tech. And uh, like, it doesn't, you can't actually, like, in a sense, it feels quite, I feel sometimes, Richard, that we've allowed the false markers of progress in, if, for example, in areas such as medicine and technology to mask the fact that, in a sense, our entire culture is atavistically supported by things like greed and self-interest, pretty basic animalistic emotions. It's not a complex and sophisticated. The only thing that's consistent is this is what we want because this is what's better for us. You can't really find anything else there. You can't find a set of values and principles. And it seems that this trend is being uh, uh, honed over time, becoming more concentrated. And there's less and less ability as the systems of power become more adept at controlling dissent, shutting down protest, controlling narratives. There, there, there are less checks and balances, less and less democracy. It's a sort of a, in its own way, kind of wonderful. Would you, what do you think in terms of, uh, is that, I guess from what you said so far already, you agree that there is no perfect ideology underwriting this other than sort of certain economic interests. Yeah, the yeah. So I mean, you're right. I mean, there's there is, you know, we talk about progress, and there is, you know, um, there is progress in living standards, uh, unquestionably. I mean, people live longer. I mean, the uh, you know the the uh, you know the fatality rate of newborns. I mean, stuff like that. You look at these charts, and they're absolutely incredible. And you have to be grateful for the progress that we made in sure. certain areas, and for medicine and hygiene and disease and things like uh, things like this. It's, you know, there's been some moral progress too. You know, we don't have you know uh, public you know torture. We don't torture people in public. You know, we we uh, 
uh, you know, we have uh, laws against, you know, um, you know, child abuse, things like that. Sure. But that's just an aesthetic, really. Child abuse is pretty rampant everywhere. And we do torture people in private and we do execute people in private, you know, like, I uh, don't know, get drag Foucault into this kicking and screaming. But like one of his the main examples he uses is that, you know, initially executions were held publicly because it was a great way to demonstrate the power of the sovereign. But ultimately it made people think, hang on a minute, I don't sure I like this sovereign using this kind of power. So ultimately the executions move from the public square to behind the fortress walls till uh, they, they take place as they do in, you know, your country and elsewhere in the world in private. And even beyond the, that in itself, it's a, there's something kind of baroque about execution because if you allow people to starve to death in the street like we do in our country, if they're not able to participate in the economic art, uh, the economic market that is central to our ideology, we consider it just an ordinary and the, the, the individual is culpable. So like, I'm not saying that it ain't good that babies don't die in infancy the same way as they do because of certain <laughs> inadvertent <laughs> discoveries. But I would say that like some of these prop, the, these um, solutions are an inadvertent side effect of uh, rampant late corporatism rather than its aim. Its aim is profit. And whenever profit is threatened, then the humanitarian benefits are sort of cast aside like chaff. Yeah, I think you're right in some cases. I think I'm a little bit more optimistic. Uh, than... I'm optimistic. I believe in global revolution and that we could change the world and we could all be free. <laughs> I'm more optimistic about, you know, the recent past. I, I don't think it's all been, you know, I think it's things like, you know, the end of, uh, of slavery. You know, I've looked, at, looked into that. That was good. That was a certainly good. And it was, you know, you, you could say that was sort of an accidental thing or because there was other historical processes. I think when you actually you look back on a lot of people have uh, looked at sort of the underlying economic uh, data and what was going on. It was really there was a lot of cases where countries and peoples really did what was anti their own interests um, to end slavery. So it was, it was, you know, it's not always just, you know, oh, the ruler wants to put the executions behind. You know, sometimes people do good things for the right reasons. And, and that's good. And that, that happens sometimes. Um, but I think the larger, you know, the larger point, I mean, I think is, you know, whatever progress has been made on, 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 on uh, certain areas, it doesn't seem like we're getting, you know, necessarily uh, wiser or, you know, better able to handle our emotions. You know, there's, there's data now in the U S I think something like a quarter or a third of women are on some form of antidepressants. I mean, nature did not, you know, create us in a way that, you know, a third of women would need that. I mean, there was you know, the people, people are obviously missing something um, that they didn't have before. Um, and I think that the, um, you know, the, the, the material comfort can sometimes mask um, something wrong going on spiritually. You know, you always have video games or you always have, you know, food or something, you know, you can indulge in. Um, and then sometimes I think it can, you know, cause the, you know, cause the problems, you know, if you had to rely on your family, you know, you had to really, you know, all work together and live together um, in order to survive. Well, you know, it's hard to be sort of nihilistic and, you know, you just had children naturally, you didn't have birth control or whatever, you know, did the best, you know, the best, uh, 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 you know, the, be the best cure for existential sort of, um, you know, naval gazing or dread or depression often is, is children. You don't, you just don't have time for that anymore. Right. And, you know, now you can choose whether to have children or not based on whether it seems like it's easier or, or whatever. So I think you're right. I mean, I think we should, you know, we should acknowledge progress where it happens. I mean, it's, I don't think it's good to deny, you know, deny that stuff, you know, Stephen Pinker's books, you know, I think are, are pretty good on this. They're mostly, they're mostly correct. Um, at the same time, you know, we, we should not, you know, just be completely uh, blase and happy about uh, how far we've come because I think that yeah there's still a lot emotionally and you know spiritually if you will uh, that's you know that's not healthy no 
Also, I like to check that it's all it's actual progress rather than the appearance of that progress. And the purpose of that progress was altruistic and philanthropic, and that, that it wasn't an inadvertent side effect. But I'm not like as I say. I'm not cynical about human beings. I'm not cynical about, like, you know, you give me the most uh, ardent and devoted Trump voter out there. I believe that me and that person can connect and we ultimately have the same interests, love and family or like people out of the, you know, like sort of, God, man, I would take it to ISIS levels. I think there's hope for all of us. I think there's a way home. I think there's a way home. So I'm not cynical about individuals. I think that we are, there are a lot of unconscious systems that are in place that haven't been amended because they are running on the charge of kind of variants of self-interest and evolved traits that when scaled don't do well. Like, you know, like a, I must survive. I must not die. I am willing to sacrifice the interest of, you know, like that we don't like I feel that we need cultural models that enhance, celebrate and encourage our, I will use the phrase reductive though it is, higher nature rather than cultural models that celebrate, again, for simplicity's sake, lower nature. And but to, just to extrapolate or at least to explain what I mean by higher nature are basic Sesame Street values, kindness, community, you know, simple things like that, Not nothing complicated, you don't need a PhD. And like when I talk about lower nature... Lust, greed, violence, all things that are in the mix for all of us. As the now surely cancelled Russian writer Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs not between cultures, creeds or nations, but through every human heart. And I feel that uh, as a result of that reality, that it's in all of us, that there's a version of me that will be led only by self-interest. And if I cultivate that or if I live in environments that cultivate that or I have interactions that are based on that or if I'm bombarded with news media that exacerbates fear that leads to you know my own self-interest being exaggerated or, des- or, or, or media that excites my desire and, and similar outcomes uh, occur there, that... I have to somehow, and we have to somehow, promote val- really promote values, not the appearance of values, but really promote values that are going to bring to the surface our willingness to sacrifice for others, our willingness to be kind, our willingness to serve one another. Because I believe these things are present in human beings. I see it every single bloody day. I see it all the time. I thank God. I don't think I'd be able to continue if I didn't. But I just don't think that they're being that they're, they're not the currency of the cultures we live with it in. Yeah, I think that, you know, you talked about, you know, um, meeting a Trump supporter or ISIS or or whatever, you know, often you'll be surprised if you don't, I mean, if you don't bring up the politics or you don't bring up some ideological hot button issue, you know, 95% of the, 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 you know, the way they're the same, you know, 99% they care about family, you know, they care about good food, they care about, you know, entertainment, they like, you know, they like to laugh, you know, of course, all that is, uh, is true. And, you know, about what you're saying, I think about setting up systems that bring out, you know, the better angels of our nature and not the you know not the worst aspects of human nature. I think that's right too. I, and I think that what the, to circle back to what we got what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, um, I think nationalism is sort of the politicization of everyday life. I'm, you know, an American, uh, you are, you are British, you know, they are Russian. I, we have this sort of idea that we emphasize the difference between us um, rather than the, uh, the similarity. And even in, you know, within the country, like American conservative liberals, I mean, this stuff, this stuff works because the stuff is, you know, this stuff, this stuff is also rooted in human nature. People like tribalism. Um, they like, you know, hate having somebody 
to hate. They like the organizing based on certain lines and, you know, putting people on the other side of the line. So you have this nationalism, you have this, uh, this tribalism between, you know, parties and ideologies. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, like, you know, I think true spirituality tries to get out, tries to find a way to get away, get away from that. It's part of our human nature, you know, it get the competitive instinct that, you know, the tribal instinct can be healthy, um, you know, but the, but the, you know, we try should try to, um, it should try to uh, limit the ugly stuff, you know, as much as possible. Look, I mean, the thing about nationalism is if you can, if you can, an American, and you can uh, find if something emotionally in common and have loyalty to 300, you know, 30 million people, um, on, on that scale, the difference between that and 7 billion people, you know, the uh, population of the earth is not, it's not like your brain, oh, 330 million, you know, China has 1.4 billion, that's it. You can only, they can only love one, but that's the human limit, right? You can't love 2 billion, you can't love 3 billion. So nationalism is like sort of almost there. It's just a order of magnitude off. And I don't see any reason why we can't take that next step. Yes, I agree with you. I know like a lot of my listeners are so circum so cynical about globalism and so fearful of like some centralized techno technocratic unelected authority being ushered in, I always have to point out that, like, I would sort of, that, that's something that I'm also cynical about. But the idea that the people of the world have more in common with one another than the people that lead them into war, I think is a, a, an idea that we can't talk about enough. So, um, Richard, with your, like, research and writing around, say, the Gulf War, remember, like, you know, this is my sort of just bloody i don't know parochial regular joe recollections of that time there was like a like marches against that war before it million people marched in london there were suspicions that there was no legitimate connection between iraq and the uh, horrific 911 attacks and yet that war happened in our with Tony Blair and his administration cooperated in the, uh, I guess, manufacture of a dossier that suggested that there were weapons of mass destruction. There were no weapons of mass destruction. A moral case was built against Saddam. He's a dictator. He's a monster. He was publicly executed with a bag over his head. I feel like I remember watching it on the That's telly. Crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yes. I saw like this. I saw this thing once. This bit of video, Richard, where it's like Gaddafi speaking amongst some sort of, I think, in like Arab Arab Emirate council. Going, it's like they killed Saddam Hussein. Arab League, yeah, it's like the United Nations yeah. Arab states. And he's like, you're yeah, next, and they're all, ha, 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 they're laughing. And uh, yeah, Assad is there, and like these other leaders. Yeah. They're just like, look at this buffoon. And, you know, Gaddafi is killed, you know, not, not Look killed. at him with his crazy perm. A couple of weeks later, weekend at Bernie's, Gaddafi in the back of a truck, he's jostled about, dead body. You know, like, it's pretty crazy, that, that stuff. And like, so now... You know, like a lot of people were saying, hold on a minute, when they're going into Iraq, all these construction companies, all these energy companies, all this mad black ops gear is going on. Is that now something that's verifiable and just evident that we don't talk about? Because I know Tony Blair, he's still out there peddling that, you know, he'd do it all again if only he had the chance. Just let me, just let me at him. You know, so like what um, perspective do we, uh, has even a, a couple of decades of history afforded us? 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I think actually looking back to that time, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think there are a few lessons that, you know, people sort of, uh, uh, you know, look back on. So people will often look back and say, you know, even before the war, they'd say, oh, this is about oil. Um, and then in retrospect, I think a lot of people say that. So if you look at actually the role of the oil companies, it's, it's just not, it's just not there. It's like the, you know, the oil companies, what they want is basically to buy oil from whoever um, controls the land. They don't need, you know, they, so the U.S. didn't actually get a lot of oil contracts out of Iraq. It was actually China and Russia. It's more direct. I mean, it's more, you know, the Halliburton's, uh, the weapons contractors, they were the ones who, um, uh, they were the ones who profited uh, there. And you could look at sort of what happened to all of the, uh, you know, all the people, uh, you know, people say, oh, Iraq failed, you know, there's no, account you know, the, there's no accountability in the system, these people who planned the war and, uh, you know, were big, you know, were these, uh, you know, they, they just had a disastrous outcome. Well, if you look at, you know, their, you follow their careers afterwards, oh, they're doing fine. I mean, Paul Wolfowitz was probably the, you know, the biggest pusher of the Iraq war within the the uh, administration. He went, he worked for the World Bank. Um, Doug Feith, another big one. He's now, he's now at the uh, Hudson Institute. You know, who knows where, you know, we, we probably don't know where all, uh, all the money that Hudson Institute gets, but, you know, there's probably, you know, for sure, there's probably some uh, weapons manufacturer, someone with an interest in American foreign policy. You know, that's where all these people end up going. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's just sort of, it's the ultimate demonstration. It's like the extreme case of like everything you want to say that's wrong with American foreign policy in the sense that it doesn't make much sense. It's not good for the country as a whole. It profits certain interests. And then the people who, you know, planned it and who were at fault, you know, they ended up all right in the end. Yes. So <laughs> the people that planned it and executed it did yeah, even George Bush, I mean, a hero. I mean, just he's like a hero now. Like he's, you know, they, they were attacking the uh, uh, Kentaji uh, uh, Brown Jackson, the uh, the woman for the Supreme Court, because she said she apparently said, or somebody related to her said, or some filing said that like Bush and Rumsfeld were like war criminals. It's like you're canceled now. Don't talk about George W. Bush. I mean, it's really, it's just, really, it's it's really completely the opposite of what what you'd hope would have happened. Yeah, according to international law, that is the, precisely how the Blair and Bush should be regarded. But like a, we did a video the other week about just the mutability of international law and its application. Yeah, and this is what you're supposed prevalent. to hate Putin for. This is what you're supposed to be so angry right now and put a flag in your bio about. Like, great, be angry about that, but be angry consistently and be angry with anything more at your country, which, you know, you pay taxes to and you vote for and you identify with. Just start there first. It's mental. So what's this thing? I guess it's a, a quote of yours on Russia and you're talking about the sort of the the uh, fallibility and uh, the sort of, I suppose, ultimately the impotence of sanctions because they failed in territories that don't have the kind of economic or military might of Russia. And then you sort of talk about maybe Russia should try cutting a few billion off Bezos's net worth to stop him, to, for, to get him to stop NATO expansion. What, what do you mean about that? And what point are you making about the relationship between these sort of uh, the kind of sovereigns of uh, the big tech class and the relationship between economics and international politics? And I just, can I just tag to that question about sort of, you know, that the Bezos uh, sanction idea that a mate of mine, uh, her fella, who's also my mate now, like he works in shipping and he told me they're doing all shit. He goes like 10% or 15%, he reckons, of the world's merchant navy force are Ukrainian folk. So like this whole thing's super disruptive. He also said that no current sanctions pertain to oil anyway. Like, so it's like, yeah, we're sanctioning even oil because we actually need that. So even that is not like a gesture politics deal, no? Yeah, exactly. So the, um, 
you know, the, uh, so the, the, the idea is the U, you know, the U.S. or, you know, its allies are going to go around the world. They're going to be seizing yachts from these Russian oligarchs with the idea that, you know, they'll, I guess, tell Putin or they'll turn on Putin or something. And the idea is you'll also punish the Russian people. They'll somehow, you know, turn against the war. You know, human nature doesn't really work like this. It doesn't work. I mean, you could sanction countries and you could actually, even when the sanctions are effective, you could you could break them down into grinding poverty, like North Korea, like Venezuela, uh, like Syria, like Iraq under Saddam. Um, and guess what? They, they still find a way to pay for their militaries. You know, that's the, the one thing that they don't give up on. People are nationalistic. They usually blame the foreigners who are, uh, you know, who are, uh, who are, you know, putting sanctions on them, who are challenging them. They usually don't blame their own leaders. If anything, it lets them deflect uh, from what's happening. So yeah, the Bezos comment, it was sort of a, it's sort of a, it's a sarcastic sort of reductive and absurd. I'm like, think about how absurd this would be. We're going to take away Bezos's yacht. Um, therefore, the U.S. is not going to go to war with Iraq or, or something like that, right? It's just it's just so 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 stupid when you look at it. And you know, the, or we're going to raise gas prices on Americans, right, and make Americans not be able to log into Netflix. I just saw Netflix supposedly left uh, Russia recently, and then you know we won't have an Iraq war. We won't have a Libya intervention. I mean, we're not thinking these things uh, through, unfortunately. And the sanctions are, you know, they they bring pain. They bring some pain to the Russian people. I mean, not the, you know, the oil is still there. And actually I saw that the Russian, you know, Russia's making more money off of oil now because of the war, the price of oil has gone up. So even if, even if they sell, you know, the same amount, um, they can't sell other stuff, but the price of oil goes up. That's, you know, that's good for their, uh, their coffers. So this stuff, usually it's, it, it, uh, when it works, it just hurts people for no reason. Um, in this case, it, it, it's, you know, definitely not going to work because the oil is still there because Europe needs it. And so, you know, we seize yachts and we, ta- we pat ourselves on the back and, you know, we got that rich guy and then we, we you know, we, we cancel the ballerina um, or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just silly. It's maddening, right? <laughs> it's like really maddening that we're this stupid in our approach to what are, you know, fundamentally important issues. Yes, it feels like we're, you know, whether it's at the apparent level of geopolitics in the form of economic sanction or more parochially in the actions of individuals, we're satisfied with appearance rather than reality. This appears like a thing, but it's not a thing at all. It's like people can't take reality there's only so much reality we can take whether that's the reality of our own inevitable death the reality of conflict the reality of corruption and then the people become so adverse to it that anyone that introduces reality to them is a potential problem rather than a kind of i don't know a youtube channel or a journalist in our cases (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's fascinating to think how much of sort of human pathology is avoidance of reality. I mean, you see this in people's, you know, people's mm. lives. You, you, you ever, if you've ever dealt with an addict or, you know, somebody who wants to lose weight and can, you know, never do it. I mean, the, the, their perception of what's going on in their life is often, you know, extremely inaccurate. Um, in our own personal lives, at least we have an incentive to get the right, you know, question. So we tend to be less deluded in personal stuff um, than we are in politics. Politics, you know, if me and you are in a room and you know, one of us is conservative, one of us is liberal, and like we're just judging whether this guy's a jerk or this is a nice person or not, there's not massive, I think, 
tend, there tends to be not massive disagreement on that, unless it's like Trump or something, right? Unless we just have just like an ideological commitment to liking the guy or, or not liking the guy. Um, and then politics is doubly difficult because you have this dislike of reality, but then like, it doesn't matter. Like people never heard, people who never heard of Ukraine, you know, a month and a half ago, and then, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna suffer the consequences of whether the war goes on or it doesn't now have, you know, absolutely passionate takes on Ukraine and they get to feel part of a crowd and they put the flag in their bio and they get to, uh, they get to beat their chest and cheer. Um, and so in politics, I mean, every sort of human pathology is sort of magnified, right? And sometimes idealism and good things are magnified too, but it seems like, you know, the sort of the broader perspective that we take in the sense of, you know, nationalism or thinking, you know, in global ideological terms, uh, the more the bad stuff comes out and the less room there is for sort of the positive human traits to have an influence. Richard, thank you so much for your analysis, both of like individual social mores and kind of the modern cultural dance of morality and also for explaining some of these broader ideas. I'm really glad we've had the opportunity to meet and talk. Mate, thank you so much for your time and we'll see you again soon. Good luck with everything. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Russell. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Richard Hanania. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with the hashtag Under the Skin. Remember to go to RussellBrand.com now and uh, sign up for my mailing list. I'll give you that discount code to get 50% off them gigs. And if you're not meditating every week, you should. I'd release on Above the Noise a new meditation every Wednesday. If you uh, enjoyed this episode, why not listen to Yanis Varoufakis? He's talking about military action. And Dr. Edith Eager. I believe she was a Holocaust survivor. That's an amazing episode, actually. And keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos daily. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.